Hello everyone, I hope you're having a wonderful start to the new year. Before we kick off today's episode, I wanted to reply to many of you who have been reaching out asking me how we can practice together in 2024. Now, I'm not running as many public yoga classes, but I am running a workshop and a retreat in the new year. Now, if this isn't something that is of interest to you, feel free to skip ahead to today's episode. But if you are interested, stay tuned. The first workshop I'll be running is called Inward Intention and that's on Friday the 19th of January here in Melbourne. This workshop is designed to help you get out of your head and into your body so that you can set your intentions for 2024. This will be a restorative 90-minute yin yoga practice and I'll be guiding you through a series of postures to help you open up the energetic channel from your head to your heart. I'll then be guiding you through a visualization and meditation that will help you unlock your deepest desires and bring forth your intentions for the new year. You'll leave this workshop with a deep sense of relaxation and clarity, as well as a goodie bag from our friends at Good Living Only. If you're looking for a more immersive experience, then my autumn renewal luxury retreat is for you. This three-day, two-night retreat is for anyone who wants to slow down the pace of life and connect inwards while enjoying the incredible amenities that the luxury accommodation has to offer. This retreat is designed to be taken at your own pace with all activities being optional, including daily yoga and meditation practices, a breathwork practice, and an incredible fire ceremony. It's the perfect escape for a couple, a group of friends, or even a special trip with mum. Spots are filling fast for both the January workshop and the autumn retreat happening in May. So if you'd like to register, head over to my website, ashbutters.com and follow the prompts at the top of the page. I can't wait to see you there. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Dr. Brooke Scheller. She is a doctor of clinical nutrition, an author and the founder of Functional Sobriety, a nutrition-based program for alcohol reduction. After finding freedom from alcohol in 2021, Brooke took her own experience in sobriety and applied her expertise in nutrition and functional medicine to help others change their relationship with alcohol. Her approach delivers results such as improved brain health, mood, energy, focus, gut health, and hormone balance. Her latest book, How to Eat to Change How You Drink, has recently launched here in Australia and is an educational read for anyone who's looking to improve their relationship with alcohol. Dialing in from New York City, I'd love to welcome Brooke onto the show. Brooke, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? 
I'm so good. And Ash, I need to hire you to read my my bio for all of my future <laughs> interviews because that was beautiful. Thank you. Oh, bless you. You know what? We I'll send you the recording. Feel free to... <laughs> I always say it would be nice to have that every time you enter a room. Yeah. <laughs> really oh, you start feeling... job. Thank you. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. I mean, there's so, so many amazing things to read there. And I'm so excited to dive into your story today. We've kind of been connected on Instagram for a little while now. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw that the book was coming out, I thought I absolutely need to get you onto the show because you not only have your own experience with addiction and recovery, but you are a wealth of knowledge. And I think everybody listening today is going to get so much out of this conversation. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I love having these conversations around the world. Like how cool is it that we get to have this conversation, you know, from Australia to New York City and to be reaching so many people in between. So it's so fun to to get to meet people through this community. And that's one of the best benefits of this sobriety lifestyle, right? Is meeting new people and connecting with people that maybe we wouldn't have connected with otherwise if we were inside of our own circle still. So super cool to connect. 100%. We, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about community later in this conversation because you touch on it in the book. And I think it's a really powerful topic that I want to dive into more. But absolutely, to your point, the fact that we've been brought together seemingly because we both decided to remove alcohol from our lives. How cool is that? And it's definitely so cool. a community that is so supportive and so inclusive. We'll definitely dive into that as well. Now, Brooke, before we get into the meat and bones of this interview, as I like to say, I'd love to kick it off with a few simple questions to allow our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So let's start off with where did you grow up? What does an average day look like? And what do you do for fun? Oh, I love these questions. So if you, and I know you've read the book, Ash, but if you read the book, you learn so much more about me and where I'm from. But I grew up, and I always make this joke that I grew up at the shore in Jersey, but not the Jersey shore. And I have to (laughs) clarify that because um, shortly after, actually, I graduated high school, that show came out, the Jersey shore. And it's filmed, it was filmed about 15 minutes away from where I grew up. So that, that paints a very interesting picture, but all of those people are actually from New York. So the Jersey Shore where I am from is we were all beach kids. I mean, we used to drink on the beach and uh, hang out on the beach. There was one summer I'll never forget that I went to the beach every single day of the summer break, I think with the exception of like two days. So we were big beach kids. And um, I grew up, so I grew up in Jersey and then I'm now in New York City, which means I'm about an hour a little over an hour away from my family who's still down at the shore. Close enough um, that I get to go and visit, but also uh, love being here in New York City. And that kind of leads into the second question, which is what does a typical day look like for me? So I, um, as you mentioned, I'm a doctor of clinical nutrition and I have an office here in New York City, about 15 minutes away from where I live. So uh, most days I'm waking up ideally early, taking my dog out for a walk. I have the sweetest little puppy named Pearl. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen her pictures. And, um, and then I typically, I'm a Peloton girl these days. So I'm, I'm doing a Peloton class, um, having some coffee for sure and breakfast. And then I'm heading over to the office to either see clients or work on some of our online programs. And, um, yeah, I love being in New York. I've been here for about six years living in the city and, uh, that was fun and games while I was drinking Mm. (laughs) 
And also a lot of fun and games, I think, in sobriety, too. And I really believe if you can be sober in New York, you could be sober anywhere. So uh, it's definitely a part of the challenge, but also something really exciting, too. Oh, I love that. And tell me, what do you do for fun when you're not working? Yeah, well, great question. I, I work a lot, um, yeah. but work for me is fun. I mean, um, sobriety is a, a huge part of my lifestyle. Nutrition and wellness is a huge part of my lifestyle. So when I'm not kind of quote unquote working, I'm still usually involved in those things in some way, right? In that um, I love going to the spa. I love going to the sauna. I love, you know, um, meeting up with friends to have a delicious meal. I really love spending time outdoors, especially in New York when the weather is nice, getting to walk mm -hmm. around in some of my favorite areas, going to some of my favorite parks. Uh, and really just, you know, I'm, I feel so blessed to live in New York City, a place where there's so much to do and so much to see. And, and to get to, you know, kind of explore that day in and day out is really a big part of my fun. It's such an electric city, isn't it? I know, I know if like every time I've touched down at JFK, it's almost like this, you feel it in the air. There's mm -hmm. almost like this energy that's just bubbling away. But I have to be honest, I haven't been back since getting sober. So I need to add it to the list because the last time I was in New York City, was 2019 and I was like right at the peak of my addiction and I remember having a panic attack in my hotel room and not knowing whether or not to call an ambulance because I thought I was dying and I wasn't sure whether or not I was there on a work trip as well so it mm -hmm. felt so inappropriate to call an ambulance this is where my head was at the time I can't call an ambulance because then they'll check my travel insurance and then work will find out and how do I explain that and so I remember just sitting there in my hotel room just like holding my heart rocking back and forth it was oh mm. so awful I'm so glad that that's no longer the reality for me but yes to get back there and experience the city clearly in sobriety yeah. uh, that would just be magic for sure come and make some new memories it's funny that you say that because 2019 was such a peak in my addiction too so like I'm I'm imagining this like parallel universe where we're both like somewhere in the same city probably not far away from each other struggling <laughs> exactly oh my goodness oh that's sending so us, right isn't it sending us some compassion and love to get through that that day yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, Brooke. All right. I would love to dive into your photo now. So Brooke, mm. here on the show, we ask our guests to bring in a photo from a time in their life where they were hiding behind a smile. So you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was internally you were struggling. Could you please describe for our audience who, name, who may not be watching right now, if they're listening along, what, what does this photo look like? What am I looking at here? And also what was actually going on for you at that time in your life? Mm. You're looking at a photo of me holding a glass of champagne with a big smile plastered on my face, um, but also definitely hung over from the night before. Mm. And also prior to like drinking the next morning and into the next day, um, kind of in in continuity of that photo in that photo. And that is a photo from New Year's Eve, uh, 2018 mm. into 2019. And you brought up 2019, right? Which was also like a really difficult time for me in that I had moved up to New York shortly before that, um, a year or two before that. And it was really the first time in my life. And, and again, if you read the book, I tell a lot about this in my story that kind of, 
I had always been a big drinker. So moving to New York, it wasn't like there was a massive increase in my drinking at that time. I had always been a big drinker, but it was kind of the first time in my life that I was like, everything was a little bit on steroids. Like everything was a little bit bigger. I had a, a bigger job. I had a bigger income. I had, um, you know, access to a lot more partying and people and, you know, uh, opportunity to just like be involved in the social scene and the drinking scene. Hmm. And, um, and I particularly remember that, that new year's Eve and that new year's day, because I remember waking up feeling horrible, uh, you know, after being out and drinking all night and then going to brunch with a friend. And I remember, um, it was actually the day I booked a trip to go to France for two weeks shortly after I graduated with my doctorate. So this is all kind of like leading up to me finishing my schooling. And I talk a lot about this in the book. A big part of my story is, you know, I was an expert in health and nutrition. I have three degrees in nutrition, a bachelor's, a master's and a doctorate. So even prior to having the doctorate, I knew a lot about nutrition. I had been in the field for a long time and I a big part of my story is I feel like I was living a double life. Mm -hmm. I was wanting to be healthy and wanting to promote health. And at the same time, I was really, really struggling with alcohol. And, you know, it's funny because I've showed this photo to people more recently and they're like, I don't think you look that bad. When I look at it, I'm like, I can like see, I can see the sadness behind my eyes. Um, Mm. and, and the struggle and, um, the just, the confusion of not really knowing what, what to do and where to go at that point in my life. And, um, Mm. and so the years kind of 2018, 2019, 2020, um, prior to the pandemic were, were really intense drinking years, but the pandemic really pushed me over the edge in terms of, um, you know, I wasn't just having brunch on a new year's day in the morning. I had started drinking earlier in the day, um, you know, in, in 2021, in that kind of last few months leading up to the end of my drinking, which my sobriety date is June 14th, 2021. Mm. And you were drinking alone at that time, weren't you? That's sort of where it had taken you to by the end. Yeah. You know, I had, I had been drinking alone for years though. You know, I, um, especially after moving into up to New York city, because there were, there was, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I had a pretty robust social life here. So I was definitely drinking with others a lot too, but I was also, you know, if it were a Friday night and I didn't have plans, I would get a bottle of wine and, and have that. And then, you know, or go on dates or find mm-hmm. other ways to kind of continue to drink. Um, mm-hmm. even if I didn't have like something social going on. Mm-hmm. And it, as you describe that that place that you were in where there was almost, I would describe it as like an incongruence in your values where you've got all of this knowledge, all of this expertise that you're probably sharing with clients and educating everyone around you on the ways to live a healthy life, but then you're going home and drinking excessive amounts of alcohol alone. Like what did that actually feel like day to day? Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> it was, it was really uncomfortable. Um, you know, and at the same time, at the same token, five years ago, even, I mean, alcohol was much more pervasive in the health 
industry than than it is today. We're really starting to see shifts just now. I mean, yeah. you know, we're seeing major platform people with major platforms starting to speak out now against alcohol and and the true effects of alcohol. But five years ago, I mean, in 2019 or 2018 everyone I knew in the wellness space was, was a drinker, you know, like mm. you were almost again, like it was weird. Anytime someone's not drinking, it, it was weird. Right. So mm. I have a recollection even of having, um, a boss at one of my previous jobs who was very big into health and fitness and, um, was very regimented with his eating and his diet. And, and he was a non-drinker and he was the only person I think that I had, had interacted with. And it's not to say that there weren't other people that were touting or trying to promote that, but it was easy for lack of a better word for me to find other experts in mm -hmm. health and wellness and nutrition who were drinking just as much as I was. And that even goes to show still to this day. I mean, I go to conferences and things all the time where alcohol is, is very prominent and there's not many non-alcoholic options. And so we are seeing a shift happen, but it, it has taken a long time for that. Um, and I think that there's many people, we see the statistics in, in doctors and medical doctors and their, their drinking rates are really high and, um, it's, it's high stress environment. And so it's not, we are not immune to it, to the effects of alcohol use, to, you know, dysfunctional alcohol behaviors because we're healthcare practitioners. Mm, mm, absolutely. There's so many misconceptions and I want to dive into those a little bit further down the conversation. But before we go there, Brooke, I'd love to know a little bit more about your history. You do speak in the book about growing up in an environment, a family system where addiction was prevalent. Could mm -hmm. you share a little bit more about what it was like growing up in that environment with your dad's relapse and your mum's mental health? Yeah, it it was, um, you know, it's interesting because the the shifts that happened in my family happened during my teenage years. So it was it was more of a, tra a traumatic experience when things shifted for me rather than growing up surrounded by addiction, you know, for my entire upbringing. And, um, so that created a lot of trauma and a lot of, a lot of stuff that in my adult life, I've had to continue working through and managing the effects, you know, the long-term effects of how that affected my mental health and how that contributed to my alcohol use. But I had been drinking prior to that. Um, you know, and so it, when I look back at my story, what's really interesting is I had kind of developed a pretty consistent drinking habit prior to some of these more traumatic effects of my father's relapse and, and these things happening, but I never, I didn't have the appropriate coping skills. And so when those things happened, the only coping skill I had was drink. You know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't necessarily have, um, a, uh, other skills in terms of how do I manage these feelings and these emotions. And so that really became my main mechanism of coping with stress throughout the entirety of my life until, mm -hmm. until, yeah, I, I started to peel back and, and once I, 
I went into recovery and, and now have been on this journey that, as you know, and as everyone who's listening who is sober knows that it takes a village to work yeah. through all of this. Um, nutrition, like we'll talk about today, is is such an important piece that I feel like is missing in the conversation. But we need therapists. We need community around us. We need recovery programs to help help us navigate how to manage stress and and cope with childhood traumas and and family dysfunction along the way. Absolutely. You have this beautiful note at the beginning of the book where you thank your grandmother Mary mm. for speaking the language of recovery to you. What did that look like? You know, it's interesting and now now you're going to um have me well up here with a little tear. Um my grandmother had 50 years of sobriety when she passed away in 2017. And I was not sober. <laughs> I know. I was not sober when she passed away. And um, I look back now at, I, I'm, I am saddened that I never got to tap into her sobriety wisdom while she was alive. But at the same time, that message to her is all about how she influenced and her recovery influenced my life without me even knowing it. And it's interesting now my, my aunt, um, her daughter says to me that she downloaded into me that like her wisdom downloaded into me and that, you know, that's a huge part of, um, you know, of my recovery is, um, is recognizing that this, this, is in my family. It's something that's in my blood for better or for worse. And, um, I feel so inspired that she was on that journey, even though I didn't know it when she was alive. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. That's yeah. As somebody who also, Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. It really touched me. I, I too have alcoholism running down both sides of my family tree. And so mm -hmm. when I read that, it just really, it really spoke to me. So thank you for opening the book so vulnerably and sharing mm -hmm. with us here today. All right, Brooke, I want to dive into your mission. Now you share in the book that your mission has become to discover how nutrition plays a role and to educate those with a history of alcohol use on how to use nutrition to change their habits and heal their bodies. Are you ready to dive into that with me today? I'm so ready. This is my shtick. This is my amazing. I'm so nerdy over. I love it. And it's funny because when I look back at my own experience, like I I continued getting all of this schooling around nutrition because I I always enjoyed it and I always wanted to know more and I wanted to know why these certain things were happening in the body. But when I look at my experiences now, like at the point that I'm at, I can like very clearly see how all this like unfolded in this way that like in such an amazing and like I can only believe that it is like in my DNA in some way that I was meant to be here because I, I always loved nutrition and, and the science piece, but like until I got into this sobriety arena and, and really the substance use and, and alcohol recovery space and how that re nutrition relates to that, like I, I was never as excited to wake up and go to work or start my work. Um, mm. You know, I tell often in my story that I'd wanted to write a book for years and years, you know, since I was a child. And I never knew what I would write a book about. You know, when I got my doctorate in nutrition, I figured, I'll, I guess I'll write a book on nutrition, right? But I, I didn't know what about. 
And um, once I got sober and I, I started to, to learn more about this space and start to put the pieces together, which were not together until I wrote this book, um, that I was like, oh my God, I, this is the book. Like I had been <laughs> knowing there was a book in me, but like I didn't, you know, all the pieces kind of fell together um, once I got sober. And it really mm -hmm. took that experience for me to um, to get a step closer to feeling like I I am like in the right place and that I'm I'm working from my life's purpose is what it really feels yeah. like. Yeah. Oh, I love that you just shared that, Brooke. I so agree with that. Like, I truly believe that alcohol is this great disconnector, mm -hmm. and it really blocks anybody from being able to tap into what their mm -hmm. true purpose is, their their true why. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that you can't live a fulfilled, happy life consuming alcohol. I'm not suggesting that at all. But from my own personal experience, which mm -hmm. is very similar to yours, once I removed alcohol from my life, I was able to really connect inward and tap into that channel of like what actually sets my soul on fire, which allowed me to step into my purpose. And it's like you shared before when I asked you, what do you do for fun? And you said, look, I work a lot, but that is fun. Mm -hmm. I'm exactly the same. And I think when you do find that purpose and that state of flow, that's where you wake up every morning with that excitement and that drive and that passion. So yeah. I can, I, you can see it. It radiates out of you and Thank just you. well done. I'm so excited to, to ask you these questions. So let's Thank kick you. it off. Now, we kind of touched on it before. There are many, many misconceptions about alcohol and alcohol use, but what do you think one of the biggest misconceptions is? Yeah, well, I think the biggest misconception is that alcohol is healthy for us in any way. Um, this is really changing in today's day and age and in the time where, where research is now coming out to show that the proposed health, health effects or health benefits of alcohol, um, are not necessarily true that we maybe, um, got a little ahead of ourselves in some of that early research, which I speak about in the book comes mostly from the Mediterranean diet. And I get asked this question now, especially a lot about the blue zones, because mm. that that is that that is part of where the research comes from. It all has to do with the Mediterranean diet. The blue zones are, you know, popularized a little bit more now because there is a Netflix documentary on it and people, you know, are aware of there's a book on it and these different things. But um I think the biggest misconception is that it's healthy for us in, and what we really know, even if you dive into that early research, is that um, it is healthiest if we don't drink it. <laughs> There's no controversy on that, that we, we don't need alcohol to improve our health, um, mm. and that it's a, kind of a very particular point of view in terms of those health benefits. So my part of my mission is is bringing to light these these true health effects of alcohol and even if there is minor benefit in very isolated incidences of of dietary approaches like mediterranean diet even if there is minor improvement in something like cardiovascular risk what we know about alcohol's effects on the brain and on the gut and on cortisol and hormones is far outweighs, I think, some of those benefits or those proposed benefits, which we can get from having a Mediterranean diet in general. Totally. I remember the the big advertising sort of slogan that was prominent when I was growing up was that 
red wine was good for you because it contained antioxidants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I talk about that in the book. I have a whole section on antioxidants and how red wine is not the only source of antioxidants, although a lot of people believe that to be true. In fact, I've had clients historically say to me, well, I was drinking wine because like for the antioxidants, like I believe mm. that, the, that that was giving me something that I needed. And resveratrol, which is the main antioxidant that we talk about in red wine is found in other types of berries and cranberries yeah. and peanuts and other foods. So we don't need to be consuming red wine in order to be getting those health benefits. Totally. And then when you have the berries or, or the peanuts or whatever else it is that contains this resveratrol, you're not getting the negative impact of ethanol on top. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I mean, most people don't understand that ethanol, alcohol is a class one carcinogen, meaning that it is known to cause cancer in humans. The class one carcinogen list also contains things like tobacco and asbestos and radiation, which there's no argument about those things causing cancer. Like, hey, have one cigarette a day and you'll have an improvement in your cardiovascular health. We're not arguing over that, but we're still arguing over alcohol, even though it's on the same list. Why do you think that is? I think that there's a lot of industry ties to alcohol. Um, I think it's big business and, um, you know, I think we will see this change. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that there's been a lot of comparison lately of alcohol to tobacco and the the huge strides that we've made with tobacco and reducing tobacco use and a lot of discussion around how do we start to follow suit with alcohol. And a big part of it is, you know, when the campaigns started to come out in telling the truth about tobacco, right? They were called the, like the truth campaign, right? Because people didn't know that tobacco was harmful in a very similar way that alcohol is kind of today in that we used to have advertisements in magazines that said doctors smoke camels, right? This is the preferred cigarette of doctors. And now that's illegal to do, right? Because yeah. we know that tobacco causes cancer and yet we we have not made those same strides with alcohol. Um, but I think we're, I'm hopeful that we're going to move in that direction. And I know that some of the governing bodies, including the World Health Organization, who released uh, a statement earlier this year to say that there is no safe level of alcohol consumption for so long. Again, we've kind of, we've misled the public to believe that alcohol has health benefits and um, and that isn't necessarily true. And I think now we're going to have to do some backpedaling on that with mm -hmm. education. Mm, absolutely. I think, mm -hmm. like you said, the, the tide is definitely turning, but it's like the Titanic. It's this huge <laughs> ship that's going to take a really long yeah. time to start to pivot. And who knows what the future holds, but I definitely know that when I'm even talking to people that are younger than me, their relationship, their attitude towards alcohol is a lot healthier than it was when I was growing up. That's for sure. Gen Z is the first generation that um, we're seeing alcohol use decline, right? Wow. So the boomer generation, the Gen X, the millennials all had, had high alcohol intake and the Gen Z is moving more towards being sober curious, alcohol free. They are using more marijuana or other types of products, but we're seeing a little bit of movement away from, I actually heard um, a comparison of, um, 
Oh my gosh, I wish I could pull this from my brain, but it's something about how alcohol is like boomer technology. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Gen Zs are like making fun of people who drink alcohol because it's like old school way to like party. <laughs> yes, I love that. That's so, so funny. funny. Now, Brooke, I love that in the book you talk about these different types of drinkers because not everybody consumes alcohol the same way. And you're not even suggesting in the book that 100% elimination is the only way to go. And you define these different types of drinkers with these different archetypes. So the archetypes that you have listed in the book, there's the social drinker, the stress drinker, the habitual drinker, and then you have this fourth one, the nonchalant drinker, mm-hmm. which I was glad that you included because I actually know people who are like that and I'm it blows my mind because I just cannot relate. Um, and the fantastic thing about the book for anyone listening is that you can, if you're not sure where you fall, you can actually take a quiz to find out which one you are. Now, what I think is most interesting is that when we look at alcoholism as a progressive disease, it can you can move from one archetype to the next. And I certainly, as I was reading through the book, was like, yeah, I started as a social drinker. Then I probably moved to a stress drinker. By the end, I was a habitual drinker. And then I just, well, I just couldn't stop. How do you say, how do you see this play out in people? And how does one know whether or not they are a specific archetype or whether there's maybe something more progressive at play? Yeah, so that's a great question and it's it's interesting because when I when I wrote this, I I didn't realize how interested everyone would be in these archetypes that all the conver- all the interviews I've been doing on it there's this huge interest in the archetypes and I'll first kind of explain why I I I added that in there and part of it has to do with my question as a scientist, and I say this in the book, is I always want to know the why. Like, mm-hmm. why does some, why do I maybe have a more difficult time quitting drinking than someone else might? Why is it that someone else's uh, experiences with alcohol, they might feel totally different. They might, you know, not ever get to that point where they would turn into a habitual drinker, for example. But also because, When I started working with clients around alcohol reduction in kind of toward the end of 2021, early 2022, I not only was working with people who were interested in cutting back their alcohol intake that were heavy drinkers, that were more habitual drinkers or drank like I did, but there was also people coming in that were these social drinkers that felt like even though they don't drink every day, they're still struggling with cutting back and they can't really figure out why. They don't necessarily identify with some of these people that have maybe an experience like yours or mine, Ash, that by the end they were drinking daily or almost daily, but they still feel like once they start, they can't stop and they feel like they can't say no to a drink and they can't Mm. kind of break that pattern and they're not really sure why. And so it kind of goes into this, the conversation about the gray area drinking, right? Of we don't really have a definition in there in in the world today of what that really means and how to classify people's experiences with drinking. And so I even see this now in my online community. Um, I have an online group. It's called the Functional Sobriety Network. And we have this conversation regularly because we have all different types of drinkers, all different types of archetypes in our group. 
And sometimes, for example, if we're reading a quitlet book where the author speaks solely to their experience being a heavy drinker, the, those that are more social drinkers or stress drinkers and aren't drinking as often are saying, yeah, but I, am I really that, like my yeah. drinking wasn't that bad. So do I really need to quit? Like, I, you know, I'm not really sure. And it goes to say that you don't have to be an everyday drinker to decide that you want to quit. And in fact, one of the things I've been speaking a lot about is that you don't have to be a daily drinker for alcohol to affect you daily, to affect your physical health on a daily basis, right? That you could just be a weekend drinker, but if you have anxiety during the week, those weekend drinks are probably contributing, right? Mm. And that's not something that we've necessarily spoken about broadly in our society quite yet. And it's keeping us stuck, right? Because mm. we believe that until it's bad enough, whatever that means, self-defined, that we don't, you know, there's no place for us or there's no room for us to stop. And so when I was working through these archetypes, it was important for me to feel like I could speak to these other areas and also talk about some of the biochemistry behind it too. So that when we get into the final section of the book of recommendations, there's actually recommendations for these different archetypes based on if you're a social drinker, someone who drinks more in social situations, or if you're someone who is more of a daily or habitual drinker. Mm -hmm. So how important then do you think it is for somebody to be able to actually get honest and, and go through this process of self-evaluation before they decide to make a change to their relationship with alcohol? I think that it's such a personal decision for each of us that I don't believe we have to be at a certain point to decide that we need to quit or cut back. All mm. we need to be is fed up and not feeling well and not happy with the way that alcohol is affecting our lives. That is something that I really hope with this book that people who are not at a rock bottom can say like, well, I want to make this choice now before I've lost the ability to choose, right? Because mm. as I know, like the more you drink and the more that you kind of move through those phases and become a stress drinker, a habitual drinker, and, and start to develop that physiological addiction, you, mm. you're losing the ability to make that choice. And so the yeah. earlier that you're choosing to quit or cut back, the better off you're going to be. It might be a little bit harder because the temptation is there or kind of the mind trickery of I'm not that bad. Do I really need to quit is there, but you also have like ultimate control over making that decision for moving forward. Mm, yeah. It's so true. Isn't it? If you can, you, you, the whole idea that you don't have to hit rock bottom and it's like, I always say to people, just ask yourself the question, like, is alcohol contributing positively or negatively to your life? What, like, which one's stronger? And then make your decision based off that. Now, Brooke, you talk about sugar in the book, and I am so glad that you did because I relate so much to this part where from my own personal experience, I used to think that I didn't have a sweet tooth. In fact, if you asked me, you know, would you like dessert when I was out dinner? Like I never, ever wanted it. I would always choose to have an espresso martini instead of anything sweet. I always just wanted more alcohol. And then I removed alcohol from my life and, oh, my goodness, did I start craving sugar. It was insane. And even coming up to four years of sobriety, I still find that after I've eaten a meal, like that mental obsession to want to have sugar is, is really strong. Why does this happen? 
Yeah, this is, of course, I had to include this in the book, right? Because this is what people first think of when they think about nutrition and and becoming sober, sober curious. And there's a couple of reasons why this happen, why this happens in the body. One of the big things that people automatically assume, and I think what much of the conversation today is about, is about dopamine and how when we take away alcohol, we have these kind of lower levels of dopamine. We're seeking this dopamine hit or reward, and so we're seeking sugar. And yes, this is a part of the puzzle, but what you've learned in reading the book, and if you're listening and you are uh, going to read the book, there is an entire section on blood sugar and the importance of blood sugar and blood sugar management throughout this process. And if you've heard me on other podcasts before, you follow me on Instagram, you know I talk a lot about the importance of regulating blood sugar. And part of why this is important is because when we are regular drinkers, it has an effect on how our body starts to release or not release the uh, hormones in our body that manage our blood sugar. So many people who have a history of heavy drinking also have a tendency to go into hypoglycemia. So what that means is that we get low blood sugar on a more frequent basis. And for those of you who don't know too much about low blood sugar and what that means, you have felt it before when you get hangry. We all know about (laughs) there's those Snickers commercials of like, you know, we want to rip someone's head off if we're, we're hangry or we haven't eaten for a long period of time. Well, we have a susceptibility. Yeah. We have more of a susceptibility toward that when we have a history of heavy alcohol use. And so what happens is we have more of these low blood sugar scenarios than maybe the average person would. And anytime we get into that state of low blood sugar, our body needs a quick source of sugar or carbohydrate, which is going to bounce that sugar back up, give us the energy, get us out of that kind of irritated state. And so sugar, when we take away the alcohol, sugar becomes the replacement for that mechanism too. So Mm. this is important because now, again, the dopamine scenario, I think a lot of times we, we hear that and we go, okay, well, it just is what it is. And we have to deal with that until dopamine restabilizes itself and, and its levels in our body. But when it comes to something like blood sugar and blood sugar regulation, we can have a direct impact on that by what we eat, right? So mm. one of my go-to recommendations, especially if you're early in recovery, is increasing your protein intake. Every single meal and snack throughout the day should have at least 20, 25 or more grams of protein, which is going to help stabilize your blood sugar and help you avoid those dips. That is where our sugar cravings or our alcohol cravings will start to come. So we can Mm. also avoid that by having more frequent meals. So I always recommend no more than three to four hours between having something to eat. Again, lots of protein. And especially at that afternoon time, the witching hour, we call it, right? Four or five, where <laughs> everyone's getting that alcohol craving. Well, my first question to my clients when they're experiencing that is, well, when was the last time you had something to eat? And normally it's lunchtime, five hours ago, six hours ago, however long ago. And yes, of course you're craving alcohol. Your, your, your blood sugar is bottomed out. And what we need is something to increase our blood sugar. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It has to be Ideally, it's food, right? And so by simply adding those things in, by adding in an afternoon snack, I really find that people can avoid those 
those uh, intense cravings and it'll make it a lot easier, not only for, again, the sugar cravings, but also the alcohol cravings. Mm, such a good point. And you've got some fantastic recommendations in the book of different snacks that you can have. So for anyone listening along, make sure you grab a copy because there's so much in there that actually helps to support you as you start to embark on this journey. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the gut brain connection for a moment, Brooke. Why is good, healthy nutrition so important for our mental health? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of different avenues we can touch on here when it relates as it relates to our mental health and food. And I think that a lot of the previous conversation around mood and mental health is, you know, again, similar to addiction or or substance use in that, oh, it's in the family if we have history of, um, you know, a, a parent or a sibling or someone else with mental health disorder or anxiety or depression that we're kind of destined for that. And Certainly there are genetics that can inform, you know, our dopamine levels and our serotonin levels and those other things. But one thing that people don't realize is that nutrients, vitamins and minerals play a key role in the production of things like our serotonin and our dopamine. They're also built off of amino acid building blocks, um, which are from proteins, right? If we're not getting enough protein or enough diversity in our protein, if we're not getting enough of these key nutrients, things like our B vitamins, vitamin C, um, magnesium, zinc, iron, those are all critical nutrients in the conversion and the production of things like serotonin, right? Well, what is mm. what is a um, antidepressant? It's typically a serotonin booster, right? It increases serotonin levels. But my question is, well, why are serotonin levels low to begin with, right? Well, is that a deficiency, a nutrient deficiency that might be contributing? And ironically or not ironically, what nutrients does alcohol deplete? The exact same nutrients that support a good positive mood, right? And so mm. there's kind of this vicious cycle that happens when we drink. And this is part of, again, why alcohol can be a contributor to things like anxiety or depression, because when we drink, we deplete out these nutrients we experience low mood or anxiety, how do we cope with that? Well, we drink more alcohol. So we kind of create this vicious cycle where when we take away the alcohol, it's really important to start to replenish these nutrients that can help to restabilize our brain, help us to more naturally produce dopamine and serotonin so that we aren't seeking necessarily external factors in order to boost that. So I, I so important. Like it's, it's like a, like a light bulb moment, right. That goes off. But that's why in the book, we talk about some of the foods that can replenish that, but also supplements can be a, a helpful tool as well. I remember when I was in rehab and they were actually injecting me with vitamin B1 thiamine for the first seven days that I was in there. If somebody was looking to remove alcohol from their life, this episode is dropping at the start of January, which is a time when I know a lot of people are thinking about the year ahead and what changes they want to make and living an alcohol-free life might be something that someone wants to try out this year. So if they were at that very beginning stage looking to remove alcohol, but then wanting to put these supplements into their diet, what would be, say, three key supplements that they should consider at the beginning of their journey? 
Yeah, so that's such a great question. And, um, you know, I won't get, of course, the book is a wealth of knowledge on all of this. Mm. So definitely check it out because it's going to help you walk through, especially dry January. Um, it's perfect timing for dry January because it's got a 30 day guide in it. And um, yeah, so supplements are really, they, they are really, really helpful. And I am a, a proponent of food and bringing in key nutrients from food. But of course, um, if we are pretty depleted and we have, again, this kind of long-term deficiency from alcohol use, it can be helpful to use supplementation to really boost and start to improve how you feel more quickly. You know, a lot of people come to me and say, Brooke, I've cut out alcohol and, um, you know, I still feel like crap. I don't have any energy. My mood sucks. Mm. I'm kind of feeling like maybe I should just drink because, you know, I don't yeah. feel better. And all that tells me is that there's still something missing. There's still a piece to the puzzle that is not uncovered and that could be nutrition. So, um, a couple of the things that I use and, and my company functional sobriety, we recently launched supplement packs for early sobriety for mid Amazing. For sobriety and also for sober curious, because I get this question very often. Um, but one of the things that I love to incorporate is a B vitamin complex. Exactly as you mentioned, Ash, some B1 is only one of the many nutrients that is affected by alcohol. B6, folate, vitamin B12, all of the B vitamins are really key to replenish in early recovery. And again, they're key for mood and for energy. And so we want those because those are the benefits that we're seeking. Mm. Also a big proponent of utilizing amino acids that can help to support cravings, that can help with improving mood, but also reducing anxiety. So I often use things like L-glutamine, which is one of kind of the key ingredients in my craving crusher supplement, but can also be taken on its own. Um, there's also another amino acid called L-theanine, which can be really helpful in lowering anxiety. So if you're someone who has more of a tendency toward um, the anxiety type of symptoms, that could be helpful. And then lastly, I'll point out, um, I'll pick one more supplement. Um, let's go with magnesium. I know you asked me for mm. technically I'm giving you four, um, but magnesium is another key one that about 70% of Americans are deficient in. So I'm going to imagine probably across the world, we've got similar stats around it. And magnesium is our body's relaxing mineral. And so it helps induce sleep. It helps us kind of helps provide that calming effect. And so again, it's depleted the more that we consume alcohol, right? So when we can take, when we take away alcohol, if we can kind of support these different pathways that we were using alcohol to, to help with, we don't necessarily have as difficult of a time removing it. Hmm. That's the perfect segue into the next question that I wanted to ask you, Brooke, which is all around sleep. So I have become a bit of a sleep geek in sobriety. I'm quite obsessed with tracking my sleep and it's something that I love to help coaching my clients on because I think that creating healthy sleep patterns and having healthy sleep hygiene is so, so powerful in affecting all other areas of your life. If we don't have that foundation of sleep, then it impacts everything else from your health, your physicality, your your mental effectiveness, and also your output. Can you share with us, Brooke, why is alcohol so disruptive to sleep? And why do we crave carbs and sugar 
the day after an average or disrupted sleep? Yeah, so great questions. And there's a couple of reasons why alcohol affects sleep negatively. And there's a bit of a misconception there too, right? Because a lot of people use alcohol thinking that it's helping their sleep. And Mm. what it it can do is it it kind of anesthetizes us initially, right? It, It can be a sedative in the sense that it can kind of help us initially fall asleep. But what we do see in the research is it's affecting the quality of sleep throughout the night. So we're having less time in kind of deep sleep. We're not having as um, as high of quality of sleep. And oftentimes people experience broken sleep. So they're waking up at three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. And some of that has to do with the blood sugar and actually the metabolism of alcohol that once our body starts to clear the alcohol out of the system, it is it's, allevi- it's eliminating those kind of effects that allowed us to feel restful. And now it's creating more of that kind of anxiety type of feeling. But Mm. when we are the next day, when we're not getting quality sleep, and I wrote an article about this like many, many, many years ago for one of the, the wellness blogs here in the States. And what we know in the research, but, but makes a lot of sense too, is that when sleep quality is poor, what, what are we, we're in that kind of almost like a low blood sugar state, right? We can think of it in a way that carbs and sugar provide energy, right? Mm. So in its most simplest form, when we're not getting good quality sleep, when we're not sleeping enough, we are reaching for the foods that are going to give us quick energy, but not necessarily sustained energy, right? Mm. That's where the protein comes into play that we want to make sure we're having that protein lots of fiber, healthy fats are going to help us sustain that energy longer than things like quick, quick carbs, like sugar, refined flours and things along those lines. Mm, Yeah. Oh my gosh. Even, even now that I'm sober and it's interesting when I work with people who are in early sobriety, they always share that they have trouble falling asleep. And that's, as you've explained, because we've been using alcohol as a sedative, but then to your point as well, is it's actually something that takes time to rebuild. So having this awareness that you can use nutrition to support yourself the next day while you're battling through this disrupted sleep. Like, unfortunately we don't just stop drinking and then all of a sudden everything's perfect. Like it does take time to heal and to repair to be able to support yourself with your nutrition the following day will then help to eliminate the temptation to think, well, I may as well just go back to drinking or this doesn't work for me. So thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful as well. Yeah. And sleep is interesting because a lot of people use alcohol again to induce sleep, but sleep regulates mm. within about three weeks or so for most people. Mm. So mm. it isn't necessarily that it's going to take six months for your sleep to regulate. Like that could take a, that could be a little bit more frustrating if you just hold fast for a couple of weeks. And some of the recommendations that I make in the book, um, I provide herbal recommendations um, of things like valerian root, for example, that can help with sleep. Magnesium can help with sleep. Mm. So some of these things uh, can be used during this time to help to regulate as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Now, Brooke, the last thing that you talk about in the book before you dive into your incredible recipes and recommendations is the importance of community. So I'd love to talk about that. I love the part in the book where you share how 
when you were drinking, you spent all of this time inside, you know, in the saloons, but there was this whole world outside the saloon doors. And I remember thinking the exact same thing because for the first probably, well, the first year of my sobriety was COVID. So everything was shut down. But that second to third year when things started to open up, I remember in the beginning trying to almost fit my old life into my new world. And that was actually really uncomfortable. Like it didn't work. And now I've come to the point, it's interesting. I was actually talking to a woman about this in a meeting the other night, because obviously it's a busy time of year. And she was saying, you know, how do you, how do you manage in these social situations without drinking? And I thought to myself, gosh, I don't even remember the last time I was in a bar, but it's not that you, you cut away that part of your life and then you're just home alone. Like there is this big, beautiful world and this big, beautiful community. So tell me more about the importance of that. Yeah, it's funny that you bring this up because part of what inspired that was I had someone reach out to me at one point on, on Instagram and say, so what do you do when you stop drinking? Do you just go to a bar but not drink? And I was like, no, I don't go to a bar. Like there's a bazillion other things to do in the world besides go to a bar. And it's kind of this awareness, right? That like when you spend so much time in a bar, you forget that there's all these other things to do because it's just like your your focus is there. And um, and there's this realization that happens when we get sober and we realize like you don't just, it's not like bar or home alone, right? It's like bar <laughs> or whatever the heck else in the entire world that you want to do, right? Um, mm. and, and in fact, once you step out of that, you realize how limiting that experience really was, where it felt like mm. it was so important or so, you know, like um, monumental, but it really was, it was, you were pretty much stuck between these four walls in this dark, dingy place that smells bad, right? Mm. And um and it takes finding other people and, and creating a community around you of people who are non-drinkers or don't put so much focus on drinking to start to be able to see that. Because exactly like you said, it's hard to fit the square peg in the round hole once you get sober, right? That it's like, mm. well, I don't really enjoy being in a bar anymore. I'll go if there's, you know, someone's birthday or some, you know, some type of special event. But for the most part, I would rather be with people who want to do similar things. They want to spend time outdoors. They want to go to a museum. They want to explore rather than just kind of stay stuck in this one place. And we all know that community is so important in sobriety. In fact, some of the research around Alcoholics Anonymous is that the part of why it is so successful and has continued for so long is because of the community element within it and because of the mentorship and the, the um, learning from other people of how to be sober, that mm. you don't have to join AA. It's only one of many, many communities that exist today. Even Instagram, there's a massive community. Mm. I mean, I've met a ton of my sober friends through Instagram and being part yeah. of a really cool community of, of women and men that are, you know, interested in expanding outside of the bar. And, um, it could be really hard to change your patterns if you're still in the same community of people that are still drinking. So it's important that we find other people that we can relate to, have had similar experiences and, and want a similar type of lifestyle that we want. And that's mm -hmm. part of why I created my community, the Functional Sobriety Network, because 
there's, I don't believe that there will ever be enough communities of having this conversation, but the Functional Sobriety Network was really founded around the principles of, of nutrition and wellness and using that as part of your journey. And so there's many, many ways to get involved in community today. Again, everything from AA to all of these different you know, online groups that are more geared towards sober curious or this gray area drinking, that it doesn't have to be, you know, AA in a basement of a church, which is what most people imagine AA is. There's a lot of other things outside of that. And I know they're popping up every day in all of the major cities and um, mm. in every which way. So it's just about kind of exploring and a couple of different ones and seeing what works best for you. Absolutely. I love what you said about the fact that it really isn't a one size fits all recovery model anymore. And depending on what feels right for you, there is definitely an option out there. So it's just about doing the research, putting your hand up, asking for help and and leaning into the uncomfortability of maybe meeting some new people and, and getting yourself into that environment. But it's such a beautiful, welcoming space, as you as you mentioned in the book, which is awesome. Rook, there's one final question that I have for you today that I love to ask all of my guests here on the show. You've been sober for over two and a half years now. What are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life that is happy, joyous, and free? Mm. Well, community is one of them. Community is a non-negotiable for me. And that community looks like several different things. You know, I have several different communities of people that I surround myself with that are complete, that are totally non-negotiable for me. Um, another non-negotiable is self-growth. <laughs> and, and that looks like a lot of things too. Some of that is community and recovery work. Some of that is therapy. Some of that is, you know, um, personal development in my business and my, you know, career goals and things like that. So that is definitely number two. Um, and, and wellness is a non-negotiable mm. for me because it is a perfect replacement for all of the time that I spent, you know, drinking or doing things that were alcohol related. Um, everything from cooking to exercise to, you know, spending time at the spa. Again, I'm a big sauna, infrared sauna fan. Um, and these are mm. things that I wouldn't necessarily do previously in my drinking days, or I would, but as punishment basically to, because I had drank. Yeah. You know? so <laughs> using these things to kind of um, replace those unhealthy habits and those previous behaviors, but they also are what feel, they help us feel good. They help bring us joy. They you know, improve our health and our longevity. And that's an important piece too. So I think those are my three non-negotiables. Mm, I love that. That's brilliant. Community, self-development and wellness. Mm. Amen to all three of those. Brooke, I have just loved speaking to you today. You are a wealth of knowledge. The book is phenomenal. Like I said, I'm I couldn't put it down. Like there was just so much that I was learning, even being almost four years into my journey. So whether you are already sober or you're sober curious, this is a book that will be beneficial for everybody. The book is called How to Eat to Change How You Drink, and it is available now. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about your world, where should they go? Yeah. So thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. I can't wait for 
everyone to read the book. It's really, um, it's been life-changing for me and I hope that it provides you with something that will help inform your journey moving forward. And you can follow me on Instagram at drdrbrookscheller and I post a lot of tips and tricks and good things over there. But you can also check out functionalsobriety.com which is where you can learn more about my online course, my online network, uh, our supplements that we offer and all the other good bits. Um, lots of, there's a blog and lots of other free content over there for you to check out as well. And that will provide you with some direction if you're interested in incorporating more of these nutrition practices into your lifestyle. That is truly amazing. I'll pop all of that information in the episode show notes. Brooke, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so much for the contribution that you have made, everything that you do and for your time here today. Thank you so much, Ash. I'm thrilled to be here and I hope to come back again soon. Absolutely. Bye. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.